Hello, welcome to On the Home Front. My name is John Murphy. Very happy to be sharing some time with you. You might be watching us on YouTube on the WILI channel, along with all of our other shows that are on Monday afternoons, Monday to Fridays, I should say. We have a, have a YouTube channel. Also, AM 1400, 95.3 FM. And we're also rebroadcast on WECS, the public radio station at Eastern. Our program today is very busy. For the second part, we're going to look at the second segment of the Poetry in the Park series at the Julia de Burgos Park right here in Willimantic, about a mile and a half from our studio. Tomorrow at 6.30, they're going to have live poetry readings, and we're going to talk about that. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk about new grant and training opportunities for artists from the Assets for Artists program of the Massachusetts uh, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art. It's called MassMOCA. They fund arts trainings in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and there's some good opportunities coming up that we're going to tell you about at the end of the show. But right now, next to me, I'm happy to have Ken Nall in the house. Ken is part of the cast of Young Frankenstein, which is going to be opening at the Wyndham Theater Guild on July 28th. They're coming back for a new season. And also seated next to uh, Ken is Kathy Burdick. She's also uh, the stage manager for the show, but she's been with the Guild now since uh, 1985, and Ken's been there for 20 years. So thank you for all your dedication to drama and for keeping the Wyndham <laughs> Theater Guild alive. Because thank you. all across the state, area theaters are really coming back. Yes. It's really nice. Yes. Slowly but surely. So maybe one good starting point is Kathy can share some wonderful news about a grant these folks received to help them do their work. So share the news. So we received a $50,000 grant um, that we are going to use to replace our house seating, which is the chairs our patrons sit in, Indeed. and the tables. So we're excited about that, and we'll be looking at that. Can I say bravo on the new chairs? Yes. <laughs> I think bravo. a lot of people will agree with you. Oh, it's wonderful. Very much so. And that's part of the everyday experience of the theater. Yes. That's right, yeah. That's yep. great. So that's underway this year. That's all, yep. I guess, in stages, Yes, right? it's in stages. It's in, yeah, we got notification, I believe it was two months ago right. that we got it. So we're working on getting everything figured out. Right. So right away, I want to mention the website. You should jot this down to stay informed all year about all their shows, Wyndham Theater Guild. Dot org. So it's real simple. And they're kicking it off with Young Frankenstein. And Ken is a multi-personality performer here. He's having three different outfits. So tell me about the play, why you guys chose Young Frankenstein, and then we'll talk about how you're going to present it. <laughs> well, since Kathy's on the board, she'll probably talk more about why it was chosen, because I was right. not involved in that. Oh, so you're a true victim. You're a true victim. <laughs> um, the Theater Guild has a play, read, play reading committee, and oh, yes. um, our director and our music director got together and did some chatting about what we wanted to do this summer, because it's our first summer back in four years. That's right. Um, so last summer we did a variety show, but we wanted to come back with a, a big pr production uh -huh. and so when they presented it to the board that was the decision that we made as a as a group board yeah and we're really looking forward to doing it so yeah with everything going on these days a little mel brooks humor can go a very long yes. way oh, yeah. yes yes so Ken, so let's talk about you I just, or you want you to talk to about the show yeah, uh, the show. yeah okay sure. um so i i did my homework and i looked at wikipedia so, <laughs> <laughs> the source of all knowledge in the universe and uh so uh this play was written by mel brooks who exactly. who um along with um uh, what was his name who helped him write the uh the movie um okay i'm having a senior Thomas moment here Meehan. no well the, that's the play but the, in the, the movie, um, okay. the person who, play, uh, who played 
Frankenstein in the movie. Um, Gene Wilder? So, yeah, Gene Wilder. There you go. And so that was back in 1974. Yes. And so then Mel Brooks had written that he had had a previous movie called The Producers, and then he wrote a play for Broadway with producers, which was a big success. Huge. And so he wanted to take another one of his more famous movies and try to see if he could adapt that for the stage. So he chose Young Frankenstein. And um, so, but that didn't come out on Broadway until 2007. <laughs> so it's from 74 to 2007. Uh, but he wanted to be very faithful to the movie because he knew people had seen the movie. Oh, they yeah. expected certain Iconic. things. There, there were lines, there were characters and things he had to have there on the stage. And they're all, yeah. nearly all there <laughs> in this. So if you've seen the movie, you'll recognize a lot of the things that you'll see on stage there. He made some changes, a few additions. Actually, one of my characters was not in the movie. And so, uh, yeah, so, and then that, and it, it went pretty well. Right, Victor? Pretty well. Yeah, so I'm playing uh, three characters in this show. And uh, one of them is called the hermit and if you've seen the movie you remember me that remember that scene was that marty feldman no that that was igor oh, igor that, igor was, was right. marty feldman igor, and that we've got that character in this one for sure yeah. and um no the hermit was the character after the creature is made and then runs away and oh, often who was, him. yeah he and he comes in the woods he comes to yep. the hermit's cottage and the yep. hermit is blind yep. and so the hermit um is trying to make him you know, feel comfortable because the hermit's very lonely being out there, being a hermit. And uh, so he, he serves him some soup. And uh, the that, movie that, was very poignant, treating him like a human being. It oh yeah, well, well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he he's blind; he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't see yeah. who he was talking to. <laughs> and so you'll recognize the iconic soup scene. Yes, and yeah. then uh, later on, they they have cigars after dinner, and they have an iconic cigar scene. So all those scenes are there <laughs> in the show stage show. Uh, the other character I play, as we kind of mentioned there, is Victor. Frankenstein, Victor, and he calls him Victor von Frankenstein for some reason. I threw a von in his name, and that character was not in the film, and so he's the grandfather of the star of the show, which is Frederick Frankenstein, and he has changed his name to Frankenstein because he's a famous doctor in New York, and he doesn't want people to keep calling him Frankenstein because that's got a bad reputation, so he calls himself Frankenstein, insists on that. And so... Um, He's a deep thinker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. And so uh, so my character as Victor, as his grandfather, is dead. <laughs> and uh, he not too many lines, I gather. No, he's got. He sings a song, okay. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and so he uh, he comes back to him in a dream sequence, in a nightmare sequence, and he's upset with him from one for changing his name, and he's he's urging him to take on his role in creating a monster. So I sing a song called "Join the Family Business." Oh, very nice. Yes, <laughs> excellent. And so that's that's that character, and then the final character I have is from the movie. Um, you may not remember him. He's only on there for about two minutes or three minutes. Early in the movie, when uh, when Frankenstein is in the medical school, he's giving a lecture on the brain. Right. And there's a whole song. Oh, in the, the show criminal about brain, the brain, the normal yeah. brain. Right? Yeah. Well, no, that that comes later. Oh, okay. Uh, this is just about generally about the brain, and he's teaching his students about it, and he talks about the. Um, the autonomic nervous system and how sometimes your body just responds to things without even thinking about it. And so he, he wants to give a demonstration of that. And so he calls in Mr. Hilltop to demonstrate this. And in order to demonstrate that, he knees him in the groin twice. And <laughs> I, I, I got virtually no lines. I just kind of moan and make sounds. 
right. accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's my other my other character. <laughs> well done. Hope your insurance is well covered there. It comes, much. somehow just kind of seems. Uh, this is kind of my whole thing in the theater guild. I don't know. Somehow this kind of encapsulates <laughs> my entire experience there. Is getting, That's how you kind of give need, it your all. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, they, they kind of give me these roles. <laughs> now, the reason why I love this stuff is that they're taking something that we know that is going to be transformed to the screen 3D from the flat screen. And I wondered, your fun as a stage manager is dealing with blocking, lighting. So, you know, without giving away everything, so, how did you look at that? So, um, Pam, our director, does a lot of the blocking and stuff. And what I basically do is take her vision and help her get it to what it was. And one of the things that, coming from the 3D, is you can take a pause in a movie. You, if you're doing it on Broadway, they have flying in sets and things like that. And if you've ever been to the theater, we don't have that capability. So how do you make the scene go from, you know, a castle to the hermit? Um, so we've got some very um, creative set pieces. Nice. Um, very, some very creative light pieces because um, we have the whole brain transference scene where they oh, bring, you know, bring the monster actually to, to life where he talks. And um, so there's some very interesting set ways, ways we've done the set design. Yeah. <laughs> and the set, the background, the whole the set the was whole, cur curated yeah. by Jack Nardi. Yeah, the whole set was done by and, Jack Nardi. And uh, it's a, again another one, as if you've seen other shows we've had, like recently yeah. the, the past one, Murder on the Orient Express, yeah. which he did, if you saw that one, you saw all the scene, the, the stage work just kept changing around. Yeah, like so we got a yeah. sim yeah. similar sort of thing here. Wonderful. It, it yeah. did transform into the different yeah. scenes. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I put all that together. I try to make sure that the pieces are where they're supposed to be so that our lighting that we have set up so that the characters are lit. I, I tell the actors that sometimes I can be, the, don't be mean to me because I can be your worst nightmare. I can make sure oh, yeah. you're not lit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when it's live, you can't do a damn thing about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, here's a question for you, because I use this term on the show, and I've never really explained it well. Uh, and we talk about blocking. Mm -hmm. What is that in terms of what the audience ends up seeing? It's all of the characters' movements is the short version mm -hmm, um but mm -hmm. usually a director will also talk to them about what their character's feeling how they're reacting um you know ken says he gets need in the groin how, how do you react as a you know as a guy I'm, I'm a female i don't know how that would feel but so it's just you know how do you get him to portray that so that it's believable to the audience um you can walk around in the beginning rehearsals you watch people walk around with their scripts writing in their scripts and they're basically reading the lines, but how do you bring that character to life? Mm -hmm. What kind of movement do you do, you know, to, mm -hmm. to bring everything to life? So that's kind of what the blocking is all about. Yeah, I mean, so blocking is, you know, literally, you know, walk from this spot to that spot. Exactly. But the important part of it in terms of the acting is you've got to make it look like there's a reason why you just walk from here to there. <laughs> I mean, there, there are practical reasons why you have to do that, but it's yeah. got to be something so when people are watching this, because um, what you have to realize is that we all observe people all the time during our lives, and there are things we take for granted that actually we oh, see yeah. and we pay attention to. Yeah. And so as an actor, you've got to make all those things happen on stage, otherwise you're not believable. And yeah. it's all, it turns out it's all the very subtle little things that people notice. And uh, that's what really makes characters come alive is if you can put in all those subtle things in the character. And, and hide, your, hide your true self. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to look up and see Ken Knoll. But, Ken, you know, when I look up there, I want to see the hermit or, yeah. you know, 
all that's of those people. That's the whole Stanislavski yeah. world yeah. of uh, you know, inhabiting a character, taking their flesh, and giving yeah. it life yeah. of yes. their own. You've got to make yeah. all, each one of those characters yeah. come alive separately as different people. So we have a few minutes left, and I want to mention that Young Frankenstein opens July 28th, which is a couple days away, and it goes to August 12th. You go to the website for tickets and the whole schedule. It's WyndhamTheaterGuild.org. But while we have time, I'm going to ask Kathy to talk about ways that you can get involved behind the scenes in theater to help them run and operate and grow. So how can people help and make a difference if they want to try? You can volunteer in any aspect. Um, we have people, all our the whole organization is run by by volunteers so um, we need people to, who usher so if you are a person who can you know we dress in black and white you greet people at the door you take their ticket you show them their seats right. we'll train you to do that so yeah, just to get comfortable you know right? so you get comfortable um, we'll walk you through it if there's a problem we're there to answer your questions um, so you can do that you can help um, once you've been trained you can be the house manager you can work in the bar um, but we also need technical people and when we say technical people yeah. people think like oh no I have no experience but if you can sew a hem, there are shows where we just need people who can, are willing to sew a hem on, yep. a, on a dress or a pair of pants. Um, if you want to learn something, if you're not sure, we can train you to do everything. I can mention training, yeah. Yeah, we can train you in any aspect, and we welcome, even if you can only give an hour, anything that you can give helps us um, and takes some of the pressure off the people who've been there a long time. That's right. Um, because you, you just get so used to it. Um, yeah, if you, you want to work at, during the shows, behind the scenes, there are so many people backstage that the audience never sees. Absolutely. And extremely important to make the show flow along the way it goes. You know, uh, we have spot operators, we have sound soundboard people, we have lights, we have people moving the set pieces, people moving the props, and the props yeah. are the things that are you see on the set. That's um, right anything that comes on with them keeping track of them finding them sometimes it's just a matter of finding you know we need to go find a bingo set for you know um a flower you know anything mm -hmm. that w w those things all have to be found and be done and or made so how do we do that if you know if you know how to use a um saw you can help whoever's Absolutely. building oh, the it's set. Set, set construction. Yeah. Set construction. If you can paint, you know, <laughs> yeah. even if you you're not a great painter, you don't have to be a it's great painter. It's fun to watch a set being built and realize what it's like. Because from the audience's perspective, this looks like a really solid sort of world up there and things like that. But when you yeah. step backstage, you go, "Whoa, this thing! <laughs> it's just all front." <laughs> it's <laughs> a real mix of reality yeah. and unreality. Yeah, it's part so, of that. So thing. you know, and you can reach out. Um, on the website, um, you can shoot an email. Um, I believe there's now a volunteer page. Yes. You can sign up and let us it's know. And actually, website. some of yeah, the, the website. So, uh, that's how we've actually gotten a couple of people this time. Um, yeah. So that it's you know um, yeah. through that that type of thing. We're kind of finding as coming out of COVID, everyone's coming out of COVID, and we're it's taking a little bit to give volunteers back again. Yeah, people. <laughs> Every, are, everyone's kind of just out of the habit and, and yeah. thinking about those kind of things. So we could really use a lot, a lot of people volunteering to help. It's a lot of fun. Really I think people are getting with. used to attending a little bit more, but the yeah. hands-on stuff that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, it's going to take a little while longer. Maybe. And, you know, we should mention, Kathy's been, uh, she's a board member, but she's been with them since 1985, and Ken's been there 20 years. We take for granted people's dedication, but organizations survive when there's continuity, because people do move on, they change, they move away, life comes up, but the continuity is, is more important than the money. 
And that's what you look for, people that, in a small role, that keeps the glue going. Yep. So, so many groups depend on that, and you're a good example of that. So, I uh, thank you for being here today, Ken thank Ball. You. Thank you. And Kathy Burdick. Again, the opening of Young Frankenstein, July 28th to August 12th. WyndhamTheaterGuild.org is the rest of the story. And our best to Kathy and Victor. Uh, so we're going to take a short break for some messages, and we'll come back and talk about the Julio de Borgos poetry and the Park series and assets for artists. Don't go away. Okay, we're back live on the home front for the third part of the show in a few minutes. We're going to look at the Assets for Artists program, and that's going to be about artist training and grant opportunities in Connecticut. So be sure to stay with us for that last segment. But right now we're going to look at something very near and dear to all of us in Willimantic. It's the Julia de Burgos Park, a Poetry in the Park series that's been going on for a number of years. It's back this year, and the second evening gathering is tomorrow. It is Thursday the 26th. I'm sorry, the 27th at 6.30. The park is at the corner of Curbstone Way and Jackson Street, just about a mile and a half or so from our studios. And we're going to have a conversation that aired last week on WECS with John Anderson and Susie Staubach from the Curbstone Press Foundation. They're going to talk about the series. And the two major writers next week are going to be uh, is he Antoinette Brimbell and also Allison Myers, somebody who lived in our community for many, many years, worked at Zizing Brothers, had the Everyday Bookstore and Cafe. She'll be here tomorrow night at 6.30. Here's a conversation about the series. Happy to, uh, to talk about that, um, and it's just such an honor to be involved with it as well. Um, so the, as you mentioned, the readings run from uh, the fourth Thursday in June through the fourth Thursday in September. They're all at 6.30 except for the September reading, which starts at 6, so we can get another half hour of daylight in. Um, and uh, the Curbstone Foundation, our, our charge really has been to pick up um, you know, the cultural mission of Curbstone Press, which um, operated for many years in Willimantic, um, and uh, they always had sort of a global and a local mission of literature and literature, especially that gives voices um, oh, yeah. uh, to, to people who might not otherwise have a platform um, and, and high quality poetry. So um, uh, this series has brought in just amazing writers. I mean, writers, not only um, some of our best writers in the state, but some of the best writers in the nation and in the world regularly to our this little wonderful pocket park in Willimantic, and uh, it is free and open to the public. Um, we have an open mic session as well after the two featured readers. And um, uh, this year we have been um, instituting a, uh, an idea of our, our former member, Edmund Chabot, to whom this series this year is dedicated to. And we can talk a little bit more about oh, Edmund at some point. A big shout out to Edmund. But yeah. one thing that he really wanted to do is to, is to have uh, a featured open mic and to start doing things in the program that gave more opportunities for younger or for less published, really good poets. And so the Edmund Chabot open mic series now has a featured open mic reader um, who will kick off the open mic um, for, for every reading. And um, uh, this year, uh, or in uh, this, this month rather, it will be uh, D.M. Mercer, who is a, a Wyndham resident and a former Quinnebog Valley Community College student and just an amazing, uh, performative, uh, deep, uh, terrific young poet. So she'll be, she'll be sharing, this, sharing the stage. And um, 
one other thing I should mention, we do have uh, rain that sometimes uh, <laughs> comes for the, the park readings. In fact, for Indeed. a number of years, it felt like on, on summer, you know, wonderful, bright, beautiful summers that uh, on the fourth Thursday, it would rain. Um, but this year, we started off with a terrific reading that we dodged between the rainstorms, um, and it was out in the park, and we do have a rain venue. So what we do is we post um, uh, the rain situation on our Facebook page uh, by noon, usually earlier on the day of the reading. And if it is going to be an indoor reading, we'll be reading at the, the senior center in the Wyndham room uh, in, in Wyndham in Willimantic, downtown Willimantic uh, this year. That will be our backup location. What a great location, too. How nice to have that center it's finally wonderful. available all year long yeah. for these things. All righty. Well, we have one of the two writers with us on the phone from Rochester right now, Allison Myers, and we're looking forward to seeing you next Thursday. Well, first, um, I'm delighted to be invited to be part of this radio show. Thank you. And, of course, grateful to the volunteer organizers of the series, A Labor of Love, and a, a great privilege to read in this wonderful series and also to read with Antoinette, whose work I admire. So, all around, uh, kudos and thanks. I um, My poetry, I guess I would say, is sort of a mix between the personal and the political. And I, in general, try to anchor my experiences in the everyday. Uh, and uh, I suppose overall I would just call myself uh, a lyric narrative poet. I write very, very slowly and write over a long period of time, including decades. So my perspective and my work changes. I can't say that uh, one particular strategy is something I'm wedded to. I like to experiment with different ways of expressing myself formally. So uh, I, I don't know how much of an insight that provides. Well, it gives us a context because, you know, maybe this would be a good time to ask you, because when I first came to this community many years ago from New York, you were here already, but Zizing Brothers was a real local institution, the two brothers, and then oh, you yeah. had your own. And since you've done so much work in publishing and in independent stores and helping other mm -hmm. writers, I wondered, you know, what your thoughts are about the publishing industry today and how people can find their voice in this new marketplace and how technology is part of the problem and part of the solution both ways. Wow, that's a big question. Um, thank you for that. I would say that the publishing industry trends aren't particularly new, but probably the logical outcome of its positioning within a capitalistic framework. So um, I think the, the outcomes of the consolidation of a few major publishers representing what a lot of the popular culture is about is sort of a logical outcome. At the same time, I have to say, the indie publishing sector is more active and wonderful and inclusive than ever before. It's, blossom it's blossoming continuously. As an example, the community of literary magazines and presses, which is... Uh, operates out of a headquarters in New York City, but operates nationally, has just reached the 1,000 mark for membership. And even, say, four years ago, I think they were at the 200 mark. Um, wow. There's some wonderful leadership going on there with uh, Mary Gannon at 
the head, but I think that that's a wonderful indicator of ways in which individuals and organizations and collective action work within any framework to push back, resist, disrupt the prevailing system to make sure that important writers' voices are heard. You know, that said, we do live in a culture that doesn't really monetize those efforts, um, unlike other countries. And we also tend to have a lot of competition for literature here, other kinds of entertainment and enrichment that folks do. So literature sometimes seems to take a second seat. Yet at the same time, the National Endowment for the Arts tells us more people are reading literary works than they have since over the last couple of decades when it had been in decline. And programs like this, like this little program in the park, working at the local level are so essential. And I love the fact that there's an open mic. I love the fact that there's a lead poet for the open mark, uh, for the open mic. And, and there's just a, a great um, number of outlets going on. You mentioned technology, and clearly digital publishing is an opportunity for people to connect, build connect build community, get their work out, and read work by other people, regardless of where they're situated geographically. So I would have to say it's there's a lot of uh, hope and energy, and on the other hand, there's we need to be realistic about where the resources reside. So we have to be adaptive and we have to be resourceful and to keep um, literature uh, alive, but I would say that literary writing and reading are are, are very much alive uh, in the nation today. Well, it's really great to share some airways with you and to spend some time. I look forward to seeing you next Thursday, and thanks so much for joining us again today, Allison. Take care. Thank you all. Pleasure to be here. And I just wondered, since we have two people from the Curbstone Foundation, you know, a lot of folks have really lost touch with publishing and the changes in industry delivery has changed their viewpoint of who's really in charge here and who gets to say yes to a writer and who gets to say no. And I just wondered at the Curbstone Foundation, how is your work part of what Allison's talking about to do this kind of work right here locally? I think what the most important thing we're doing is bringing writers to the to the local community. Um, we're not charging people or selling tickets or anything like that. It's just right. a just a way of sharing outside in a p- very pretty, pleasant spot and um, bringing poets like Allison that people might not ordinarily have an opportunity to hear, read, and, and actually get to meet themselves. So I just want to mention, in case you've joined us, by the way, we're having a conversation today about the Poetry in the Park series for 2023 at Julia de Burgos Park. It's Thursday, July 27th at 6.30. They also have events for August 24th and September 28th, and we'll talk about them in a few minutes. Sure. And I do want to just note that, you know, there's, aside from Allison's long and deep uh, history with Willimantic, another reason that she is a perfect fit for this series is her focus on the everyday and the idea of making poetry accessible for everyone. Um, Because the curbstone motto um, eventually came out of a Roque Dalton poem, the great El Salvadoran poet, who said that poetry, like bread, is for everyone, right. um, which, does a, which does a great statement about poetry and bread, 
that both are for everyone and that both are part of our sustenance. And, um, you know, we've been really buoyed by the, by the um, crowds that we've had post-pandemic coming into the park. And there's a hunger for this. So this is a yes. free space where all kinds of people can come together and, um, you know, uh, hang out and uh, bring a picnic lunch or a bottle of wine and um, have the kids running around in the back and um, experience really, really great literature and, and maybe have their voices heard themselves. Um, Antoinette Brimbell also, you know, certainly um, writes out of this tradition. And one thing I was mentioning, just I was going to share just a little, a little excerpt of her work because she's not here to, to share with us. And this comes from uh, one of her books, Icarus in Love. And um, uh, one thing that I, I just find really compelling about Antoinette's work, and I think this is going to be part of her work as the state poet laureate about bringing people in to poetry, is that uh, it is so suffused and energized by an engagement with art and with life. You know, the idea that, that art is something that can make our lives more meaningful, not just as a mirror to who we are, but, you know, as a way in, as a way of experiencing. So this is a little excerpt. I'm just going to read a little bit of this from Woman Sees Starry Night. So this is a woman who is viewing uh, Vincent Van Gogh's art. She leaned in too far looked in too closely, inhaled far too deeply. She breathes in the insane staccato stutter of color. Her mouth fills with a tempest of climbing moss green. Her nose clogs with waves of blush. All at once, she is drowning in the moving stillness of oil on canvas. She is being wrapped so tightly in a matrix of color she cannot escape. The blue realm is awash in rushing silence, too loud to be quiet. Were her hands not tied in throes of umber, she would have pressed them against her ears. Bursts of white light explode behind her closed eyes. Rough turquoise scrapes her shins. And that's just about halfway through this intense experience with this art. And anyone who is in Vincent Van Gogh or have been able to spend some time just... Um, uh, sitting and being really attentive uh, with that art can can know something of what she's what she's talking about there. If you stop and pause to allow the door to open, it will take you there. But right. you have to pause. You have to pause, and you have to open to see it. And that's what that's you're talking right. about. That's right. That's uh, that's the fire. That's the Prometheus stuff, yes. right? Yeah. You know, John. One of the magical things about the readings is that um, sometimes during the middle of the reading, people are walking by, people are walking by, they weren't even thinking of right. coming, yeah. and they're just so drawn in by hearing it or by the opportunity to share something of their own. Um, we've had that happen pretty frequently, and it's, you know, pretty magical. It is. So, by the way, speaking of magic, we should do a big shout-out to Sandy Taylor and Judy Doyle. Yes. Some of yes. their original co-conspirators. We had Sandy on the radio many times with Martin Espada from mm -hmm. up in, I think it was UMass, right? Uh, so let's round out the second part of the season, though, too, while we have a minute or two. There's, uh, there's two more opportunities. Yeah, uh, so, right, the, so, the, uh, the, so after the next Thursday's reading with Antoinette and Allison and uh, uh, D.M. Mercer, right. on August 24th, we have John Sirowicki and Jose B. Gonzalez. And John Sirowicki is also um, a longtime Willimantic resident, but also a nationally recognized poet. He currently lives in Amston, Connecticut, um, and he has been published in Poetry, Southern Review, 
Um, he's won major awards and um, is a, a beautiful and accessible and um, energizing, poignant poetry. And Jose B. Gonzalez, a longtime emeritus professor at the Coast Guard Academy, longtime supporter of, of uh, Curbstone and the park. He used to bring busloads of cadets up to the poetry readings at the, at the park awesome. um, to get them to experience um, you know, the art and the literature, um, which, was, which was always terrific. And he is a, um, he's a widely published poet and, um, and a sought-after speaker. He's an you know, amazing motivational and literary speaker. And then finally, on September 28th, uh, 2023, and remember the September reading, we always try to remind people, starts at 6, not the usual 6.30. Sure. Uh, we have Bessie Reyna. Uh, long-time uh, respected um, uh, voice in the in throughout the state, oh, yes. um, and uh, and Jim Finnegan, who is a, um, a a a terrific poet and and a force of nature in promoting uh, poetry in the community of poetry. He's president or former president of the the Friends and Enemies of Wallace Stevens organization <laughs> and uh, hosts readings. And uh, he also runs a, a lift serve that connects many people with many literary readings throughout the state. So you can sign up for his list serve. Um, we always put that opportunity out for people. And, you know, suddenly there are opportunities you didn't realize were out there that are just potentially transformative, especially for young people. So I want to mention the Facebook, because you can track these folks all season and next year as well. So it's Facebook.com. You know that part. Then it's Curbstone Literary Project. Okay, we're back live on the program today. And again, that's going to be tomorrow at 630 at the park, corner of uh, Curbstone Way and Jackson Street right here. I'm going to be there as well. It would be great to see Allison and Antoinette and everybody else there for the thing. All right, well, for the last part of the show, I'm really happy to focus on a wonderful resource for artists in our region. It's the Assets for Artists program, which is all part of the wonderful services provided by the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, MassMOCA. And I'm happy to have another conversation today with Molly Rideout. She's the Assistant Director of the Asset for Artists program. Welcome back to Eastern Connecticut, Molly. It's good to have you on board. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Okay. Well, we have a lot. We have a lot to cover, and I just wanted to check out first. There are uh, two great opportunities coming up in August and uh, September for artists to prepare for training in education and networking. And maybe you could start out with the first program, uh, which is on August twenty-second, about teaching artistry and working with young people in education settings. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that all of these programs are going to be online, so it doesn't matter where you call home, you can call in on these. But this, this first workshop is called The Art of Teaching Artistry, and it's with uh, a wonderful teaching artist herself, Linnea Collins, who is also the creative director of the Teaching Artist Hub, Connecticut. And this workshop, it'll be two hours on August 22nd in the afternoon. And it's really thinking about, you know, if you are an artist and you've spent all this time perfecting your craft, are you interested in teaching that to other people? And whether that's getting connected to the school systems or through um, extracurricular education programs like, at, you know, local art centers, things like that, how to go about um, making those connections, what you need to be able to, you know, share, this is what I can do, this is what I can teach, and just kind of those introductory steps. Um, and we're really excited for this, and it's open to artists across anywhere in Connecticut. So if your listeners have friends in other parts of the state, feel free to invite them, and also Rhode Island. 
Let me ask you a question about that, Molly, because this touches on something that we've done on other programs. When you work in the schools today, across the nation, funding is very unstable and insecure. And unfortunately, in many areas, arts is not always the number one priority, and you know what I'm talking about. And I wonder uh, how you hear from artists who are really trying to commit to work with young people, and they want to work with that cohort, uh, they like the energy of young people, and schools are not always as receptive as they used to be, or they have more filters. And I just wondered anecdotally if you know of any stories or how people are getting through those firewalls, Mm -hmm. because kids Mm -hmm. need the arts, it's life-changing, and they're not getting it at a young enough age anymore. Yeah, I think that is exactly, you know, some of the questions that Linnea is going to be answering in right. in this course. And, you know, this is our first time teaching this, so I oh. personally am not even actually sure I have the answers, but I know Linnea does um, because she's been working in school systems for, for many years and specifically within Connecticut. Um, and so, you know, she has that knowledge of how, how to make that approach, how to say here is something that I offer that maybe doesn't exist in your regular uh, art curriculum, or maybe you're in a school where the art curriculum has been, you know, cut back so much that there's very little, but they want, you know, they do have some small amounts of funds to bring in an artist for a couple days or a week. And so, you know, I think we'll... Linnea will focus a little bit on on like how to get hired as a you know a kind of full time person, but I think she's really focusing in on how to do those like smaller gigs that can allow you to maybe do a mural at a school That's or right. um, or like teach a dance a particular type of dance for a week, something like that, which is smaller bits that might be more affordable for um, for school districts. And, you know, for the artists, those incremental opportunities are the lifeline that keeps you going until you get a larger opportunity. It keeps right, you going. Right, absolutely. It keeps you going. And some, sometimes that flexibility is useful, too. Instead of having a regular day job, it allows you to, you know, take a commission somewhere else for a period of time or, you know, go on the road if you're a, a touring musician. And I know from other guests, too, you know, parents are so overloaded today. If, like, for example, both parents in the family are working, they have less time at home with the kids. And when school is cut back on the arts, some of those family times that even parents could bring in to, uh, to introduce the arts and get kids away from screens and that kind of stuff, it's kind of limited for them. So when people vote down taxes for school, sometimes they don't realize what they're doing to their kids. Mm-hmm. I yeah, know it gets absolutely. political. You can't get into that stuff. I know, but <laughs> but uh, you know, on the artist side, they see the effects of what happens when people don't invest in the arts the right way. Uh, right. Absolutely. But, uh, so, and again, this one is on Tuesday, August 22nd, and uh, if you want to follow up on anything that Molly's talking about today, just go to massmocha.org, and all the information is there. There's tons of stuff for you, no matter what kind of art you're doing. Now, the next yeah, one... Can... Yeah, please. I can even say, if to get to our programming even faster, our department actually even has its own website. So if you just go to assetsforartists.org, that gets you specifically into this um, into this professional development for artists programming. But of course, the rest, you know, our whole museum has so much to offer. But sure. assetsforartists.org can get you to these workshops a little faster, too. Okay, we'll mention that one very heavily now. Very good. Uh, Now, you have another session coming up for Connecticut and Rhode Island folks, and it's a two-parter, and it has to do with collaborating and trying to make the most with the resources you have, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is is really the question, you know, as you were talking about with, with funding being cut and 
scarcity of resources for artists, you know, we are asked to do it all, right? And especially, you know, I've, I've, currently live in a rural community. I come from rural communities before that. And it can be hard to find the resources you need in, you know, that's nearby you. Mm-hmm. And so this workshop, um, it's called Financial Wellbeing Through Interdependence. And it's with two uh, dancers who um, have worked with us for, for a number of years. Their names are Amy Smith and McKinney. Um, and they are going to do this two-part workshop it'll start wednesday august 30th uh be in the evening from 6 to 8 p.m and then a week later we'll have part two on september 6th um and this is really looking at kind of using examples of ways in which different artists have come together to um, combine their skills um, maybe combine resources ways you can be accessing like public safety net programs essentially all these different um, tools that you can have access to to maybe you know make it a little bit easier to to do the work that you do and maybe give you a little bit more time to actually be in the studio um, creating work instead of having to do the the administrative hustle that that is so exhausting. So they'll talk about things like um, you know examples of like artist collectives of artists that come together and say okay you're going to be in charge of all of the grant writing for each of our projects you're going to do be in charge of all of our Instagrams. Um, you over there, you're going to, um, you know, make sure that we always have the supplies we need. You know, d- different interesting examples or, or how to negotiate rates that are fair for everyone in, in a group um, and how to, how to ask for what, what you're worth. Um, so some really wonderful nuggets uh, will come out of that two-part workshop. And, you know, that information sometimes is hard to find if you're working on your own in isolation because these are fundamental things you need to know to move, but where do you find it? And sometimes providers need to have an audience to show that there is a need. It kind of goes both ways, doesn't it, sometimes? Right, yeah. It it can be be a difficult uh, line to balance of sometimes the need is so great that the the amount that a provider can can provide is just a drop in the bucket, Mm -hmm. but if... If there's not enough people applying for something, it can uh, read to certain certain funders or providers as oh well maybe there's not a need there, so it it can sometimes be hard to hard to find the balance. Yeah. I know in the eastern Connecticut region, uh, the arts groups in the last couple of years were noticing less applications from this part of the state, which is very rural and very mm. poor generally compared to other parts. And they're noticing recently more people are getting applications in. So it's really encouraging to have these programs to help people that are trying to reach out to move ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think a lot of that is, is thanks to the hard work of the, the cultural coalition that's serving Eastern Connecticut and the hard work they've been doing of, of, of connecting artists to the resources and, mm-hmm. and helping them go through application processes. And so for listeners who are not already connected to the cultural coalition, they're just such a great resource for just figuring out what to do. Yeah. That website is culturesecculturesect.org. They also cover northeastern Connecticut now, and they have a huge amount of resources. So, you know, between Molly and Assets for Artists, and you've got the Culture Sect site here, you have a huge amount of resources to help you move ahead. And one thing we have a couple of minutes to go, Molly's willing to offer a little preview of the year ahead. There's a couple of things that are not, not formally ready for announcement, but there are some things in the works that are very encouraging for us in Connecticut, and she's offered to give us a little, a little preview. Oh, yeah. 
All right, so you didn't hear it from me, but... <laughs> okay, I promise. We, um, <laughs> we are really excited that our programming, um, we've secured some expanded funding to be working, especially in rural Connecticut. So, you know, that is a lot of, you know, the bulk of East, Eastern Connecticut. That's um, our area, And so yeah. we're still kind of lining things up, figuring out what we're going to be doing and working with the Cultural Coalition, among other partners. Um, but you... We're going to be doing a lot more starting uh, in the winter and going into the spring and summer. And one of those pieces is we're going to be rolling out a second uh, year of our capacity building grant program. Um, we had one of these in the past year. We currently mm-hmm. have 10 amazing grantees. Um that are coming from all over the state. This next year's program, we're still kind of figuring out what the um, what the eligibility guidelines will be, but the application will go live in October, so folks can keep an eye out for that. Um, it'll probably be announced both on our website of assetsforartists.org. I suspect um, the Connecticut Office of the Arts will also help with um, mm-hmm. putting that out because this yeah. grant program is funded um, by the Office of the Arts, and so we're really grateful to them for making this happen for a second year. That's wonderful. And that's for individuals, right? That's not for groups. That's for individuals to get their own strength and capacity. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. So yeah. it's a micro-grant that also then gives um, some really focused attention on, uh, you know, these types of pieces that our workshops cover, but also opportunities for one-on-one coaching with, you know, one of 30 artists that are in our network um, to really tackle whatever whatever questions or opportunities that each artist uh, grantee is facing. Well, this is great news. It's always great to have you on in the program, Molly. This has uh, been a conversation with Molly Rideout today, part of a series that we're doing. She's the assistant director of the Assets for Artists program in Mass Mocha. And uh, maybe we'll try to get you here in October when things are more public and we can help you get the word out. People will be very happy to hear the good news you're sharing. That sounds great. I look forward to coming back. Okay, Molly. Thanks for taking time today. I wish you a great rest of your summer, and we'll be in touch. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, that's, again, assetsforartists.org. And now I'm going to take off my Captain Video helmet here, my, my little headphones here. But the cool thing about the show is we try and do live radio whenever we can to get people in the studio. But when good people have good things to say and they can't get here in person because they're too far away, like Molly's in Massachusetts, we do it over the phone. So I hope you got some information there. We're really trying to help you connect to resources, and resources need to connect to you to make the equation work. And that's what we're trying to do every week here on the home front. If you want to get involved, if you have good news to share, john at humanartsmedia.com is the email. These programs are on the WILI YouTube channel. Look us up along with all the other great 5 o'clock shows. And they're also rebroadcast on Wednesdays at WECS on the Pan American Express. So thanks for sharing some of your time, and we'll see you next time. Have a great week.